This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Starting off the week. Well, we got a great show planned for you. We got a great show planned for you every day this week. Tonight, we're going to be talking about sex positivity, why it's important, what people tend to misunderstand, and also more importantly, how it can really help all of us even if we're talking about things outside of sexuality, and uh, also we're gonna talk about men and mental health. Wanted to open the show by giving everyone a little bit of a laugh. Um, I am starting to become very obsessed with finding articles that talk about old school dating norms and values because this stuff is hilarious because these are things that people still believe. Uh, but at one point, these were really what people were reading to try to figure understand, uh, to figure out how to understand how to flirt. So this is from a study that was done, I think it was about 36 years ago, right? So we're going way back. And uh, the article was about the, the, the key ways that women tend to flirt. And it was basically supposed to be both you know, a primer for women to understand how others flirt and, you know, to kind of maybe adopt some of these ways, but also for men to try to decode, is this woman in front of me flirting with me, right? And again, these things, God bless them, are really hilarious, really adorable, and completely ridiculous and outdated. So uh, let's dive into some of the nonverbal courtship patterns in women from about 35 or 36 years ago. Number one, if you are out in the world and a woman is solitary dancing, yes, uh, whether <laughs> seated or standing, if she is moving her body to the music, she's most likely flirting with you. <laughs> oh my God. I must always be flirting because I never stop moving. And if there's music playing, I'm probably moving to the music. I have a lot of psychomotor agitation. I am have a lot of uh, hypomanic energy, a little bit of what you'd call adult ADHD. I don't subscribe to those diagnoses. I just see that as a different way of being in a different energy level, and I've found ways to work with it. Um, but yeah, if you see a woman seated or standing and she's moving to the music, she wants it, apparently. I mean, you can really see where rape culture swoops in, where we really normalize just a human being living their life or enjoying a song, and we eroticize it, right? Um, so anyway, there's the first one. Uh, this one's kind of funny too. If the woman gives what they call a room encompassing glance, it's a mouthful. It, so basically if the woman looks around the room for about five to 10 seconds without making eye contact with anyone, she's probably flirting with you. 
what that doesn't even make any sense you mean she's scanning the environment to see if her friends there just to t- people watch maybe to scan for predators or creepers I-, I don't know these things are really funny these are so um stupid i guess uh another one we're talking about uh, a manual from about 36 years ago that was written to help women understand how to possibly flirt and for men to understand how women are flirting. Uh, this one, you know, it is what it is. Short darting glances. If the woman gives sideways two to three second glance at a man, she's flirting with <laughs> Uh Gaze fixate. If the woman makes eye contact for more than three seconds. <laughs> eh, that one's a little more reasonable somehow. Hair flip. along with the hair toss. If the woman flips her head backwards and lifts her face up, or if the woman raises one hand up and pushes it through her hair. I mean, maybe she has flyaways. You know what I mean? Like maybe she's sweating. I don't know, but I think that's hilarious. There's something kind of adorable in that as well. And I don't know, maybe some people do use that as a way to flirt. What do I know? Here's another good one. 36 years ago, a manual claimed that a woman's flirting with you if she smiles. If, and they literally explain what that means. If the corners of the mouth are turned upward, (laughs) showing teeth, she's flirting. Who writes this stuff? And the funny thing is, this is serious. This isn't a joke. Like this literally was in print. Here's another good one. A woman's flirting with you if she's leaning. (laughs) If the woman moves her torso and upper body forward, she's flirting. You know, and again, I guess if you're sitting with someone and they're leaning up and in towards you, I can understand nonverbal cues that that means they're trying to get closer, right? They're trying to connect, build intimacy, lean into your space. I see that one. It's just funny the way they propose it. Like they just say if she's leaning, you know what I mean? And it's like, you have to contextualize it. And there's other things you have to throw in there. Uh, We have time for a couple more. Something called neck presentation. If the woman tilts her head to one side, about 45 degrees, exposing the side of her neck. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, And then again, here's another good one. If she laughs or giggles. (laughs) I laugh and I giggle a lot, which maybe is uh, maybe some people listen to the show and don't know me outside of the show. think I'm very serious, but I'm actually pretty ridiculous and silly and and I'm often laughing. I I smile nonstop. Um, I must always be flirting with everyone. And then finally, we'll close out on the head nod. If in a conversation, she nods her head. She's flirting. These things are hilarious. Oh, God. Please ignore all these manuals. All right. Coming up next, we're going to talk about men and mental health, and then we'll be sliding into those DMs. So if you've got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. All right. We're back, y'all, and we're talking about men and mental health and it's hard to suss these uh, studies out because when I talk about men, I'm talking about cis and trans men. I'm talking about hetero and homo men and bisexual. It's a very broad category. And of course, the research can't cover everyone. Any research that's done on hetero men or cis hetero men is research based in the experiences of cis hetero men. It cannot be applied to people that are trans or gay, right? Um, and a lot of the research when they say men, that's what they mean. They don't call it out. I'm hoping we get to a place where people literally say, we did a study on 100 men and they were white, they were cis, they were hetero or whatever the qualifiers are so we can understand that that doesn't necessarily apply to people that don't meet those identity requirements. It doesn't. Uh, your race will impact 
your maleness, how you experience your own maleness, as will your sexual orientation and your gender presentation, like all of these things matter. So I'm kind of calling that out ahead of time where a lot of the research we're gonna be using does, um, has really been done exclusively on white cis hetero men, um, but I still think that there's something we can, you know, meaning we can make out of it. So we have to kind of do that translating on our own until research gets better. I'm always calling that out. Not, not many other people really are. They're just kind of cool with people saying, oh, we did a research on women. And it's like, what, what, what kind of woman was that? Because you can't, there's no such thing as just any factor that is really um, an identifier for all women. Intersectionality helps us better understand that all these other threads of identity shift and change that. But according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, men died by suicide at a rate of 3.5% higher than women. Yes, men have a higher rate of suicidality as well as substance abuse. And um, a study by Mental Health America reports that 6 million men are affected by depression in the U.S. every year. Here's the problem. Men are not trained to believe that they can need or seek mental health services. It's getting better. I'm seeing a lot more men reaching out for mental health services. I think that's phenomenal. But again, it's still the minority. And uh, I shared with you a long time ago, so I'm going to kind of bring it back up, that there was a research project that was done. This was really profound for me. And it uh, asked children what mental states or emotions could be felt by men. And they put a list of them on the board. Um, the bulk of them, they said, were able to be felt by women, but men were only able to feel, based on the children's report, anger or frustration. Men were not meant, were not able or allowed, they said, right? Certain emotions were not for men. They weren't allowed to feel scared. They weren't allowed to feel soft. They weren't allowed to feel sad. And they went through all these experiences that they claimed weren't male emotions. That's heartbreaking that men are given the opportunity to only feel a few emotions. And we have this term called exothymia, which is the inability to really feel or identify or express all emotions. And a bulk of men in our culture struggle with that. That's really a male-defined issue, that men aren't able to identify or really tap into all their emotions. A lot of men are very comfortable with anger or frustration, but that's usually a secondary emotion. That's the second place they go. But the first place is, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, um, I'm lonely, whatever it is. So we have to start to normalize men discussing mental health. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that, right? Um, and we're gonna kind of break down a few of those. Sorry, I'm kind of moving my coffee and organizing my notes. <laughs> um, before we get into why, what, and how, I wanna talk about the systems. Toxic masculinity is something that people have heard a lot about, right? And American Psychological Association has finally started to really see that these ways that men are trained to believe masculinity has to be performed or what it has to look like, because we perform masculinity. Um, it's not natural. Naturally, we would be doing things that would fall under what people would call women's behavior, men's behavior, and none of the above. Uh, but masculinity is a certain set of expectations that we force ourselves into or we perform. And we're starting to finally acknowledge the negative impact that that has on mental functioning. Why? Because it's not real. It's not honest. It's a denial of what's really going on. That's never going to be healthy, right? That's never going to be something that's going to benefit someone. Um, and we're talking about mascul toxic masculinity. We're talking about how we're, you know, as men trained to be strong and to really be silent about anything else. And I love examples with children because we see it most profoundly in how we treat kids. We know from birth when gender's decided for the child, because parents decide for them until the child decides for themselves, essentially, uh, that male children are treated very differently. They're treated a lot rougher. 
where female children are treated softer and they're spoken to with quieter, gentler voices. We're already training them, just like we train them into color interests. Girls are not born interested in any color. We socialize them with micro and macro ways, pushing them towards certain toys, painting their room and dressing them in certain colors. So it's no surprise that they then begin to associate or enjoy certain color. They've, they've been socialized into it, right? And we've talked about that, that historically men were wear, men wore red uh, and pink. That was seen as regal and royal and girls were wearing shades of blue. And then about, you know, Long, a couple centuries ago, we started to kind of inverse that. So none of that's natural. None of that's essential. None of that is genetic. But we love these evolutionary or genetic theories around things. And all that's bogus. Um, so when we talk about toxic masculinity, we're talking about how people are brought up and how they're socialized, right? Um, and if you look at old school movies, any of them, action movies, westerns, you see what the aspiration looks like, right? And that's very dysfunctional. Um, and part of that is men not being able to report symptoms of mental distress, you know? Um, and these traditional ways of being that men are forced to perform and feel as though that's what they need to do to be legitimized, it increases rates of depression, right? And it also leads to rates of substance abuse. And that's understandable again, because they're being forced to separate out, to deny, to compartmentalize, to lie to themselves and others. It's going to really, really, really have a harsh and negative impact on their general functioning, right? Um, so again, leads to all that. Uh, but accessing help does not always feel like something men can do because there's a lot of stigma, right? And it seems to many as though it's a sign of failure if they can't fix the problem on their own, right? I think it's also important to recognize that for people that don't feel like a lot of men in our culture as though they are able to identify emotions they're feeling or mental health issues like depression or anxiety, that they start to somaticize it. They start to act it out in physical ailments, right? So these mental health issues quickly become physical problems. Um, not just the substance abuse, but like digestive issues, blood pressure issues, all sorts of things. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about ways to uh, be an ally or supportive of the men in your life and also ways to help us identify that maybe it's time to get some help because uh, therapy is a really great resource for that. So stick around. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. We're talking about men and mental illness. Oh, it's an important topic. Men tend to be the uh, minority in, in, in using mental health services. So if you want to be an ally, you want to be supportive of the men in your life, what are things you can do? First off, you got to ask them, sometimes more than once, how they're feeling. That's why I love the idea of saying not how are you, is everything okay, but saying how's your mental health? I like this re-questioning, redirecting. But you might have to ask more than once because, again, we're talking about a population that historically doesn't feel welcomed or comfortable expressing some of these forms of vulnerability because a lot of men will feel bad, broken, right? Toxic masculinity seeps in and makes us feel like we're not man enough if we need help. Um, so you might have to ask more than once. People that aren't familiar with having their mental health prioritized or cared for often struggle when they have an opportunity to maybe really kind of step into that. So you have to create those safe spaces, but you're going to have to ask more than once. Um, and sometimes you have to kind of hold their hand through it, where that you might be at a, you might be better able to identify mental health struggles in someone else before they're able to see them in themselves. Why? Because it's been normalized. They're familiar. It's familiar to them. That's just how things are, how things feel. And it's really helpful to sometimes say, it doesn't have to be like that. Or I've been there as well, and I wasn't aware, but I now know that there are solutions and that that's not how life has to be led. But sometimes you have to, you have to uh, partner with them and call out similarities, put language. You know, it's part of what I do in therapy with some men is put language to how they're feeling. 
you know, it sounds like you, it sounds like you're lonely. Wow. It sounds like you're really anxious. It sounds like you're sad, right? Instead of just always making it angry, anger, angry at this, angry at that. It's like, wow, it really sounds like, in fact, you maybe feel lonely. You felt left out. It sounds like you're presenting it as anger, but it sounds like you were really disappointed or let down by them. We're going to the primary emotion, not any, any longer living on the superficial secondary emotions. Those emotions that we feel are more legitimate and acceptable, right? Um, okay. So how do we know when things have maybe gone too far and we, how do we know when maybe it's time to seek help? Because it's been a rough, it's been a rough year and it's quite normal based on what's been going on and continues to go on that people are feeling anxiety, a little depressed. Maybe their relationship to drugs or alcohol or food is not, you know, the, the, the level of health that it had been prior. So I want to hold space for some of that, but changes in mood, any massive changes in moods, a sign that, you know, maybe something deeper is going on. Um, not socializing, isolation, drop in socialization could be a sign of that, right? We're withdrawing, we're withholding, we're, we're spending more time alone. And again, we have to, right now is that funky time, we have to separate out. Is that part of COVID? Is that part of quarantine? Is that part of not really having that sense of robust interest in socialization that we might have traditionally had? Or is it a mental health issue, right? Um, changes in weight, because some people will withhold eating in times of stress, or maybe eat as a way to cope and that doesn't allow them to identify what what emotion they're they're kind of trying to defend against having to feel or step into um gen, like i said general helplessness and sadness and then more importantly physical symptoms you know someone who's constantly having a lot of stomach issues or stomach distress or headaches that can be a sign that they've um really somaticized or internalized some of these emotional things and not able to really work through. Um, so if you realize any of these symptoms are going on or they're going out with someone else, it might be time to reach out and get into some therapy, right? But again, the first entry point is just normalizing that it's okay for men to struggle. It's okay for men to feel all emotions. And that's where, you know, again, the people that are victimized by something, it's always best for the people that are part of perpetuating those systems to, to kind of like lessen the severity of that, right? And we talk about all the time where it shouldn't be on the shoulders of people that are gay, right? To try to change the world and move people away from homophobia. Straight people have initiated, benefit from, and perpetuate homophobia. And so it's on straight people to really call that out and dismantle that. And so for men that struggle to be allowed to step outside of these toxic forms of masculinity as we've laid them out culturally, it's really on the hands of women to also stop perpetuating that. And I hear that all the time, you know, where I'll hear women talking about what is manly to them and what they need from their man. And it should be a talk about authenticity. I want what's best for them. I want to know who they truly are. And then we have to do that with each other. We have to stop perpetuating these ideas of locker room talk, right? Or sexism and misogyny, because none of that is part of dismantling these systems. All, 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 all forms and threads of violence support each other. We're trying to work against that. We also know in terms of relationship that single men tend to do worse mental health-wise than men that are in relationships. Men also tend to do worse after divorce than women do. And part of that is everything we're talking about, where a lot of emotional needs are dealt with by women and a lot of hand-holding. So when men are then on their own or they are now single, a lot of those responsibilities that were put off on women because they thought that that was what women's jobs were, physical and emotional labor, now men have to step in and take those responsibilities and aren't comfortable or aren't even aware how to do that. And so their quality of life severely drops. So it really hits men at all, at all levels 
and all phases of the lifespan, right? So this is just about general mental health, the way we are within our relationships with our partners, what's acceptable and, and what forms of labor we're comfortable willing to do is part of our just general mental health and functioning. All right, we'll keep talking about this. I think this is really important, but uh, we're going to slide into those DMs. And uh, then later, we're going to be talking about sex positivity. What is it? Why do we need it? And uh, how do we bring more of it in our lives? Listen to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, y'all, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. DMs come from the Loveline IG page. Drop in the DMs there, and producer Alex will get your questions over to us. Confidential, anonymous, whatever you're thinking about, worried about, we got your back. Send it in there, and uh, most likely other people are wondering or worrying about the same thing, so you're kind of helping everybody out, but uh, we're here for you. Always open, drop them in the DMs. And uh, this one says, hey, Dr. Chris, I'm having some problems creating good communication with my mom. Whenever I tell her good news, she's never happy for me. Instead, she lists all the things that could go wrong. For example, when I told her I got a new job, her first question was, do they pay more? And how are you going to get to work since it's farther away? Naturally, after 27 years of this, I'm just tired. I get it. I'm tired after just reading that. Now, I don't tell her things that I want to tell her because it just creates conflict for me. She blames her anxiety on the way she responds. But it seems like she doesn't want to fix it. I'm not sure what else I can do to try and create a good line of communication with her anymore. So, you know, sometimes I like to turn these questions into learning moments for others because I can't always help someone change someone else um, because we can never change another human being neither, nor is it appropriate. Oftentimes, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking directly to this question and I will get there. Oftentimes we want to have someone else change their behavior. We want to change someone else so we don't have to do the work that it would require for us so we can avoid doing something. And I'm not saying that this person's mom isn't maybe difficult or a little too self-obsessed with her own anxiety to maybe work on it or address it. But I do want to start by saying the person in this question has to step into their anxiety and sit down and set a boundary with their mom. You have to have that beautiful intimacy building moment where you say, hey, mom, listen, when I come to you and I share something with you that I'm excited about, I'm coming to you with it so as to have you help celebrate it with me. And when instead you turn it into something negative, that makes me not want to come and share things with you anymore. If you continue to do that, I will stop sharing things with you. Is that what you want to have happen? <clears throat> and you're lovingly giving her the opportunity to reflect back what it's like to be in relationship with her. And you're, again, you're lovingly out of respect, giving her the opportunity to maybe be part of the solution. We don't want to make decisions for people and just cut them out. We want to give them an opportunity to understand what it is we need. So express that to her. She can manage that. That is very manageable. She absolutely can work on being more aware of which perspective she chooses to enter. She can work on having better boundaries and impulse control and withhold leading from the negative. But yes, if she refuses to do that, you have a right to say, I'm no longer going to bring things to you that I want to celebrate because you're unwilling to do that. The only other caveat I'll add is you can also help her along because people need to practice new behaviors by setting that frame. I'm all about people setting the frame and asking for what they need. I do that with people in my life. Hey, I might say to a good friend of mine, I wanted to share something with you. Would you be willing to just kind of listen or celebrate it with me? I know that there might be some negatives to it, but I really want to celebrate the positives. Tell people what you need. You have to remind your mom, like, hey, mom, something important just happened. I'm excited about it. Can we just talk about the positives? Feed that to them. 
And then if they really just say, no, I refuse to do that, and they slide into the negative, you can say, listen, I'm going to stop you. It sounds like you're moving into the negative. Can we come back to the positive? Yes, you have to be willing to do that in, with people you care about. We have to take that responsibility on. And if not, then you have the right to say, I'm not going to go to them anymore, which is the only other option you're left with. Because part of your question is about how do I change them? And we can't. And so I kind of helped you understand how you script it, how you frame it, how you share with them what you need, and that's the best you can do. But to people listening, remember that. When someone's coming to you with something positive, they wanna celebrate the positive. Our anxiety and our caretaking sometimes makes us wanna call out all the possible things that could go wrong, but that's about our anxiety, and we need to settle ourselves down and just hold that. I know it's easier to just vomit it out and get it out there, but that's not what most people are looking for when they come to us. So listen more. Usually what people want is you just to be present to what they're saying to you. Few people really want solutions or fixes. And I would always advise asking that, hey, I have some ideas. Do you want me to step into the solution with you or do you want me to just listen and celebrate? I will often ask people that before I respond. Hey, that sounds really exciting. Do you want me to share with you some concerns I have or do you wanna just sit here and celebrate more and, and talk about how exciting this is? I'll even do that work when someone comes to me of asking them what they want from me. I'll even say to them sometimes you want the friend response or the therapist advice. And the, the friend response is often, F yeah, that's right, let's do this. And then the therapist response is very different, right? So I kind of, obviously I'm not the therapist, but they understand what I'm saying in context. So we gotta be better, you know? All right, thank you for that question. Coming up next, we're gonna be talking about sex positivity. It's an important topic. Stick around, you're listening to Love Live with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about sex positivity. What does it mean? What is it for? Why do we need it? I think some people think that being sex positive means anything, anywhere, whoever. Now, in some ways it kind of does, uh, as long as it's consensual and compassionate, meaning both parties are interested, everyone's of age, and uh, everyone's aware what's gonna happen, and everyone's considering the impact that this uh, experience is gonna have on others. Do your thing, y'all. But sex positivity is a counterbalance to our sex-phobic, sex-negative culture, right? We talk about that all the time. Sex education is absolutely abysmal. It's very sex-negative. And that's because sex positivity and good sex education is informational. It tells truth. It's not trying to hide anything. It's not trying to sway you. And it acknowledges that sex is a good thing. That's the, that's the core of sex positivity, that sex is good. Yes, it can be misused like anything, but at its core, it's good. We don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to fear it. And and the, 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 the um, God, what word, the companion piece? I think that goes with that, that, that sex is good. In sex positivity, the companion piece would be that uh, pleasure, that pleasure's the goal. I can't tell you how many individuals come into my office and they have forgotten or are living from a perspective that doesn't acknowledge or center their sexual goals in pleasure. Sex is available for use for so many things, for, for connection, for intimacy building, for self-esteem, for body esteem, right? To connect, it can be for entertainment, it can be for self-care. For some people, it's a form of employment, but it, it, it shouldn't be about doing it the right way or the good way or the way you've seen it done in others. It should be, who am I, right? And who's this person with me? Right? Which kind of brings it back to that other thing I've said before, which is that we, we should see every new partner as, as us being a virgin again. Who am I while with this person? Who am I this month? Who am I this year? Who am I while I'm in this new relationship or having left that other one? We should be impacted and changed based on our partner. 
right? Our new partners, our old partners. They're, I love sex as an entry point, which is why I love sex therapy. It's not therapy on sex all the time, as much as sometimes it's using sex therapeutically as an entry point to really understand who we are in the world, uh, how we work on communication and boundaries and impulse control and pleasure and traumas in there and, and, and all sorts of things, right? Intimacy, tolerance, body esteem. It's all tied in there, right? But sex positivity is entering from the point of it's being a, it's a good thing because culturally we drop our voice we use different words we think it's bad it's something we say to avoid as long as possible people see use this word virginity as though it's something is lost when you start having sex or you know if sex didn't lead to what you wanted it to you feel taken advantage of we have these such odd odd ideas around this act that should be neutral to positive and often is for a lot of people the anxiety is about not doing it the certain way. We think our bodies need to operate a certain way. We need to, you know, get hard and stay hard on demand. We need to orgasm in a specific way. We don't, we don't, we don't let our bodies do what they do. And so that's part of the work. I don't work on a performance-based model with my clients. We work on a pleasure-based model. We work on what will feel good and does it feel good. And then however that however we get there is how we get there. And that's your sexuality. We're not gonna work on performing the way you think you need to. Because again, our bodies ebb and flow based on a multitude of factors. Sex is not natural at all. There's nothing natural about it. We've put so many labels and boundaries and expectations. It is so far removed from naturalness. It's even like food. And that's why now we have this movement about farm to table, keeping it as un, un, uh, unprocessed, unexamined as possible. And sex is the same way. Um, what we call sex, how we do it, how we feel about it, all these things are the lack of naturalness. It's become such a social construction. Our race is in there, our gender's in there, our class is in there. All these different things lead us in or hold us back, make us more secure or less secure. No one is living their total, honest, most authentic sexuality. Why? Because we have to ignore then gender roles. We have to ignore trauma. To be your most authentic self, you have to not be afraid of being slut-shamed or as seen as less respectable as a professional. You'd have to push through this fear of these made-up topics and labels like sex addict, right? So it's really hard to get back to that core where it's just about pleasure. It's about connecting to self or to other. Or maybe it's about self-soothing and coping, right? We have this horrible field called sex addiction, right? All the, all the organizations have rejected that diagnosis. It doesn't even exist in the diagnostic manual. So in theory, it's not even a real thing, and I don't believe it is. I think it's a misunderstanding, and it's misapplied. But it would have you believe that sex can't be used as a form of coping. Yes, it can. Sex is a great thing to use to make you feel better, deal with anxiety or depression. If we can use food or, and yes, we can use food too, actually. But whatever, if you can go for a walk or go for a hike or stretch or read a book or watch a movie or nap, you can also have sex or masturbate or use food. I use food all the time to help regulate my mood. Yes, you can eat your feelings. It's a beautiful thing. And sex is available for that as well right? But we've put all these judgments and labels in there. And so sex positivity is the needed counterbalance to all of that. We needed a movement, and we still do, to challenge all of these inherited and socialized ways that we continue to fear sex. And it holds us back. It makes us sit still during sex and keep our mouths show, shut versus making the sounds we make. We're so worried about how we look. All of these things, are the lights on or are they off? Like, all, what would they think if I'm a hetero man and I'm into certain things or being touched in certain places? We have so many mechanisms and anxieties in place personally and culturally. We're gonna take a little break. When we come back, we're gonna keep talking about sex positivity. You're listening to Loveline. Dr. Chris, on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey.
We're back and we're talking about sex positivity, which is needed for all of us. I don't know anyone. I know very few people that have done the work to push through and are fully sex positive. It's so hard. Our culture pulls us away from it. I can't go a day without seeing in a book. And that's the worst. I see some people that are quote unquote experts in my field and they've done no work around sex or sexuality on their own or academically otherwise. And they spew the same rhetoric that shame sex. I see people from other fields, you know, yoga instructors, God bless y'all. And, and from other fields stepping into and, and, and again, shaming sexuality. We have to be very thoughtful who we're letting into our sexuality and who we're letting weigh in on it and engage it. That's why I recommend see certified sex therapists only. They're the only people you can be pretty confident that have done the work. Otherwise, most likely they haven't. And they're just perpetuating the same norms and values. Because to become sex therapist, you have to go through years of training we even do a 10-hour process called a SAR, Sexual Attitude Reassessment, where we talk about, look at, and discuss different forms of sexuality, really look at where our judgments are. Because whatever form of sex you judge or mock or put down or think's gross, that's where your work is. That's where your work is. You have to heal that wound. Why? Why are you concerned about others doing it, right? We've talked about the word slut. That's this word that says, I'm uncomfortable with the kind of sex or the amount of sex I'm hearing you have, right? It tells us a lot about the user, not the person you're labeling with. And we have to do that work. And sex positivity is the needed pushback on all that. It's the, it's the tool of healing, right? I wish we didn't even need it, but we will continue to need it as long as we still slut shame. Think that teachers and therapists can't be on dating apps. When we shame a politician for having sent out nudes or anyone for having sent nudes, which is a normal part of courtship, and we should be blaming the person who misused those photos, not the person who sent them as, a, and as an, a healthy erotic adult. We still call people things like sex addicts, which is a rejected term by every organization and even the diagnostic manual, but we still have these things in place and that's why we need it. We will continue to need it, right? So sex positivity though doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a very kinky sex life. And I think that's the misunderstanding. It's about your attitude about sex in general for yourself and other people. It's about letting people live their authentic sexual life. That is sex positivity. Sex positivity, again, is about seeing sex as a good thing. And like anything else, yes, it can be misused. But at its core, at its foundation, it's good. And it's healing. And again, sex positivity always has the word pleasure tied to it. That sex is first and before all else a tool of pleasure for self and other. 100%. And that's the thing, excuse me, clear my throat. We all have work to do around this, right? And that's why I keep saying like, you know, anything you're uncomfortable with seeing in another, as long as they're consensual and compassionate, we should be we should be backing off and allowing, but sex positivity does, it absolutely does include monogamy. Yes, it does include vanilla sex. Because again, sex positivity is about having a positive perspective on sex and honoring your boundaries and your limits. But I'd also say to my listeners, investigate your boundaries and limits. Why? Are they about body negativity and body anxiety? Is that what's preventing you from leaning into some forms of sex, allowing certain parts of your body to be seen or touched or stimulated, right? So check in on that because again, that's where we use sex therapeutically. Why do you avoid certain parts of your body being seen or touched? And can we through sex start to bring it back into use and allow it to be seen and touched and see that it's acceptable and that it can help derive pleasure? Are your limits and fears around sex and what you'll do and not do tied to gender? Is it tied to homophobia? That as maybe a straight man, you're afraid of enjoying some kinds of anal play or anal pleasure. Are you with a partner that shamed you for that? You need to get rid of them or talk to them or heal that somehow. You know what I mean? As we step into our authentic selves, because when we're talking about sex that isn't solo sex, masturbation, sex with ourselves, it does matter the health, the sexual health or the opinions of our partner or partners, right? 
And we need to take that into consideration. Stop having sex with people that are sex negative or body negative. We can't heal while still having sex with those people. I am not right now, or maybe, you know, let's just go with right now. I'm not right now a part of hookup culture. I'm in a relationship and it's got its own levels of commitment and monogamy. And hookup culture is a space that I remember very powerfully, a lot of people really denying and ignoring who they are and what they want because they're trying to people please. They're on an app saying, oh, that's what you're looking for. Okay, I'll go along with that. But what do you want? Maybe you need to pass. Or what are you allowing or what are you not allowing? Hookup culture is a beautiful space for to learn about ourselves, right? But we want to step into relationships and build relationships with people that don't have ideas about what bodies are hot and what bodies are not. All bodies are hot. All bodies are beach bodies. All bodies are erotic. We want to be a body positive, sex positive partners where you can say, this is what I like. This is my body. And they're comfortable and they're open to that. But acknowledge and explore your limits and your boundaries. Are they ones you want to hold on to or are they rooted in trauma and anxiety? Again, is your gym? in there. Step outside of that because the most honest, authentic sex doesn't care about you being hetero or gay or a man or a woman or non-binary or trans. Your authentic, healthy, hot sex does not care whether you are fat-bodied, straight-bodied, small-bodied, or gym-bodied. It doesn't care about those things, right? Because it's, it's about who we honestly are and what we honestly like and enjoy. So we have to examine that. Is it about our body? Is it about our partner choices? They're not healthy or we people please. Is it about race? We don't feel empowered. Is it about, like I said, homophobia? Is it about, again, your professionalism? You're afraid of not being seen as a professional or taken seriously. Is it about your role in life? I, 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 I'm a mom. I can no longer do things that involve anal or other forms of sexuality. Yes, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because again, our total self-esteem cannot be intact and at its most robust and resilient if parts of ourselves, most likely our sex lives or our bodies, are something that we have shame about. Parallel, it's intersexed, it's circular, it all feeds into each other. And so we want to start to think about that. And again, that is where sex positivity can heal us. We have so much cultural work to do, right? So this term sex positivity is a response and an action against Sex negativity, it's stepping into your truth. It's having a more positive spin. So it's how you think about things. It's your attitude. It's the way you approach. It's the work you're doing or not doing. And I think for those that are in uh, of identities or social locations that are consistently marginalized and exploited, this is really powerful work. And for some people, it's the beginning of that work. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about sex positivity. We're going to break it down into a few bullet points. So uh, stick around and join us. Uh, and uh, DMs be coming up right after that. So you've got a DM for us. Drop it in our Loveline IG page. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're talking about the ever important sex positivity. It's about the attitude. It's about seeing sex as good. It's about seeing sex as associated with pleasure. There's no right way to do it. It's not about performing the way you think you need to based on your body shape or size or your gender, your sexual orientation or what you've seen in porn. It's about just being honest and authentic. And it's about stepping outside of those norms and those values, right? And your partner choice matters, but start with your relationship to yourself. The more we learn about ourselves and do this work, the more we're better able to do that work while with others. Um, So what is sex positivity? Um, In the back of my book, uh, Rebel Love, I have Sex Outside the Lines is my first book. Rebel Love is my second book. Both of them are very much a journey. Uh, The first one, Sex Outside the Lines, is more academic. Rebel Love is more user-friendly. And it'll kind of walk you through sex positivity. And it's basically a crash course in you know, sexual health and wellness, body positivity, and kind of doing this work. Uh, But how do we bring and practice this in our own lives? First off, 
you absolutely need to dun, 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 stop shaming sexuality. You want to be very thoughtful. Don't call people sluts. Don't use the word sex addict, right? Don't kink shame. If someone discusses vulnerably and they're gifting you with the knowledge of who they really truly are, we don't say things like ooh or gross. We say, oh, interesting. Not for me, right? Um, but we don't shame it. We don't, we don't apply those labels to people. That's being sex negative. And also that's sexually abusive, to be honest. Using those terms as a way to, to traumatize someone's sexuality and their self-esteem. Also, pay for your porn. People are a big fan of free porn. That is not free. That was that someone makes a living off, off selling that. That's someone's, it's like we don't, we're not, you know, we no longer steal free music and film. Porn is no different, but somehow because of sex negativity, we think it doesn't matter, it doesn't count. It is, it's theft. Just like stealing music and stealing films. This matters. Pay for your porn. 100%, unless it's free amateur stuff that the people themselves have put up there, but most of it's not. Pay for people's porn. This is how people make a living and, and pay their bills. So please go on their OnlyFans. You know, pay for the studio's work. You have to do that. Uh, also, yeah, we got to be in the fight for sex workers' rights. That is part of sexual health and wellness is understanding sex positivity, which again says sex is appropriate when two consensual adults decide to come together. Sex workers need our help. They're a very under-supported population. Uh, we're also communicating our desires honestly and clearly. We're not hiding or reducing down or shrinking around other people's comfort, right? We're letting other people carry their sexual shame. We're not taking it on. We will no longer sit in silence while with our partners or even our social groups because we're afraid of what they'll think or say. We're activists. We step in there and we use the right terminology and we speak proudly and confidently. We don't drop our voice. We don't change our voices. We don't change the terms. We say what it is. There's no fear. No one's gonna be harmed by sexual languaging. In fact, we need to get more familiar, more comfortable with it. We don't need to do less. Something that we have anxiety around, like sex, we need to get more familiar encountering it, hearing about it. That's part of the healing process, making others hear about it, or ourselves. I recommend and prescribe porn to a lot of people that have erotophobia or sexual anxiety. They get comfortable seeing it, hearing the sounds, talking about it. Yeah, talking about their bodies. That is how we do this healing. We're not apologizing for that anymore. Also, sex positivity is about exploring our own bodies, touching the parts that we tend to not touch, learning that our whole body is an erogenous zone. Our entire body has the capacity to give us pleasure. We're no longer reducing it down just to what's been determined culturally as our sexual erogenous zones or our genitals. It's everywhere, right? And we're respecting consent. We're making sure that everyone that's having sex with us knows what we're gonna do and wants to be there. And it's compassionate, which means we consider the impact. Just because someone says yes, we're not being patronizing, but if we know it's gonna further harm them, we talk it out more, you know? And we understand the different levels of consent. Enthusiastic consent, then there's willing consent where someone might not be as enthusiastic, but they're doing it with consent because they're with someone and they're gifting them that, but it might not necessarily be what they want, but they're open to it, they consenting, right? We're breaking all of that down. We're also advocating and providing true, accurate, honest sex education right? We're acknowledging gay people exist, trans people exist. We're talking about sex as pleasure. We're talking about the beauty and diversity that sex can be. We talk about masturbation. We talk about toy use. We talk about kinks. Most of us are kinky. 75% of us are kinky. That's, that's the norm, actually. Most people aren't vanilla, and we know that from all the key search terms. And this is a huge sample size. Every year, some of these porn search engines release the most sought-out key terms. And we'll talk about that in another show, but 75% or more are what would fall under the kinkier stuff, right? People are not looking for basic vanilla stuff, but 
Sex positivity allows for that if that's who you are, if you are more vanilla, if you are more basic. Sex positivity does allow for things like monogamy, but we interrogate why it is we want monogamy. Sex positivity also understands open relationships and polyamory, that for some people, that's the right decision based on who they are or the partner they're with or the phase of life that they're in, right? We round all this out. And this is part of how we work on our own mental health. Because again, if we target working on some of the most difficult, anxiety-inducing, shamed parts of ourselves, it has a ubiquitous trickle-down effect into the lesser triggering parts. It's easier when we do this work to do other pieces of the work. I promise you that. But this is a beautiful entry point and a beautiful starting point. Bring sex positivity into your relationship. Bring sex positivity into your psychology. Bring it into your social group. Bring it home to the family. Take it to school. <laughs> but more importantly, like have it with yourself. All right, y'all. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. So stick around. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. DMs come from our Loveline IG page in the DMs. Drop it in there. Always confidential, always anonymous. Whatever you're wondering about, worrying about, thinking about, curious about, we got your back. Always open. Put it on in there and we'll get your question on the show. Whatever you're thinking about, maybe someone else is worrying about it as well, right? We all learn from these questions, but no questions too small or too stupid. Here to answer all of them. Uh, so yeah, take advantage of that. All right, this one says, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Hannah, and I am on a few different dating apps. All right, Hannah, Hannah wants to find some love or some love in, right? Well done. However, bum, 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 with the pandemic, I just feel like I've maybe gotten too picky. Little things will turn me away from someone, the way they're dressed, their bios, the way they typed. Or... Wait a minute, hold on. I've never heard this one before. You might have gotten too picky. One of the things that maybe turned you off is the way they type during a message. What does that even mean? When someone's typing, all you see is those little bubbles. What about that is annoying to you? I'm going to answer this already before I finish. You've definitely gotten too picky. You're becoming one of those people where you just kick someone out based on the smallest infractions because these things are not meaningful. What is the purpose of looking for partnership romantically or sexually? None of it is about how they dress or their bios. And that really is ego. And I say this very lovingly and respectfully, that's your lack of confidence. When you're hung up on what your partner, who you care about or are attracted to, what they're wearing, that is about your ego. You are overly identified. Your ego and your self-worth is overly identified and attached to how people are perceiving them. And you are living in the world in a way that we call, uh, you're living in response to what we call the imaginary audience. As though there's some audience watching Hannah and judging her based on who she's with and what they're wearing. And like, that's not the case. When you're moving through the world at a coffee shop, the gym, the movies, no one cares about your partner, what they're wearing or about you. Trust me. And even if there were a magic person to, to be like, oh, look at that girl who I don't know. Oh my God, look at what her partner's wearing. Be better than that, right? Because this is how we keep ourselves single. We get hung up on what will people think about me based on this person. And that tells me, and I say this again very lovingly, that you are not mature enough or healthy enough to date. 
if you're getting that hung up on things because you're going to have a neg negative impact on someone because you might have started applying that pressure like, oh, that's what you're going to wear or, you know, blah, like you're going to start shaming someone into looking or living in the way that you think they need to live so that you can feel okay based on how you think these other people are going to be judging you, even though none of that's true. It's like such a false construct that you're building and, and, and stepping into. Don't do that. You've definitely gotten too picky, but I've never heard that one, the way they type during a message. Good Lord. Anyway, your question continues. Things I guess I never really cared about before. Is this normal? No, it's not. Or should I try to chill out a little bit? Yes, you absolutely should. Again, we're not trying to be normal. We're trying to be healthy and respectful and kind and nothing in there did I hear that. You know, getting hung up on what's in someone's bio, some of that's reasonable. If someone said, all I like to do is drink and party, I wouldn't be interested in that. I don't drink and, and I don't value what people tend to me when they say party, right? So like that's meaningful to me. But I'm going to guess that's not what you mean because you're really judging them based on what they're wearing and how they type their message. Um, I don't know if that means you're the grammar police, which is also kind of classist and offensive as well. Um, you're probably keeping yourself single. So if you think that they're attractive, swipe yes and really take time to get to know the person and be better than being hung up on what kind of T-shirt they're wearing. You know what I mean? Because you wouldn't want someone to do that to you. I'm sure people could find a zillion things to pick apart about you, but maybe you're still most likely a really amazing human being that's perfect match for someone. And oftentimes people miss out on really finding love because they're hung up on what their ego tells them they need in this other person for it to be a match. And our ego will always lie to us because our ego is not rooted in the best of us. Our ego is actually nothing more than this, our socialization around the crappy values in our culture. You know what I mean? Body shaming, classism, looksism. Don't honor that. All right, y'all, that's our show. If you got a DM, they'll drop in our Love Lenny G page. Uh, when we come back tomorrow, we're going to be talking about uh, doing a little mental health check-in, talking about some date ideas, sharing this with y'all because it was cute and meaningful to me. I wrote down some things. And then also talking about LGBTQIA representation in sports. Oh, yeah, that's right. Dr. D's dropping into the sports arena. I'm always trying to branch out into the topics we discuss. So uh, sports, here we come. Yeah, it's going to be a fun ride because I don't know anything about sports, but we're going to be talking about it through a psychological lens. So stick around for that one. Y'all have a rest of your night. Make it beautiful. Tons of self-care. Thanks for hanging out. See you tomorrow.